What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And this uh, this whole like summer or winter break that we're in now, depending on which country you're listening from, is yeah, been like super busy for me. And so I haven't had a ton of time to record new episodes, but uh, I do have some good newish content to release over the next few weeks. Today is one of those uh, sort of special episodes. So I recently sat down with uh, Dr. Andrew Yo, who is a professor at Catholic University of America, where I did my PhD. He's also the uh, Korea chair at the Brookings Institution, recently uh, appointed. And he just had me in for a guest lecture with his class. I literally just like sat around with his students and talked shit about, you know, what we've gotten wrong on North Korea policy. How have we gotten it so wrong, right? And so it was just a good discussion. There's a little bit in here about, like, you know, my background in the military and, like, what, how I think about these problems generally in national security. And that's about it. I think it's a good listen. So hang out, enjoy. Uh, toward the end of the month and then into August, we've got some, like, really banger-ass inter- interview episodes and roundtables that are slated, plus uh, the normal crew rejoining the pod as normal to do our, like, uh, regular variety shows. So uh, with that, I'll... I'll pass the mic to myself and to Andrew Yo. This is a great discussion. What we've gotten wrong on North Korea. Peace. Time there for you, right? Yeah, no worries. Also, I owe you immensely. So this is like a drop in the bucket. Yeah. So for those, I, I'd already told the students that you had actually taken this course before it was, before I opened it up to undergrads, when you took it, it was a graduate section only politics 638 i think you took this class in 2010 is that correct oh man long time ago yeah that sounds that sounds close to right i think you took it the second time i taught the class because my my first year at cua was 2008 and then i think the next Mm -hmm. time i taught it was 2010 um so i think that's when i had you but but thanks again for joining us we've read some up some of your other stuff your more recent stuff on uh, on the Indo-Pacific uh, in earlier in earlier classes, but let me just give you a proper introduction, and then I will uh, feed a couple uh, questions to you just to get us started, and then I'll open it up for the class because I, I don't want to take too much of your time. We have about half hour, um, so let me just uh, introduce uh, Dr. Van Jackson to you. He's a senior lecturer in international relations at Victoria University of Wellington, and he holds think tank appointments in I want to say too many places. <laughs> right now, but um, but there, he's a distinguished fellow at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada, a defense and strategy fellow at the Center for Strategic Studies in New Zealand, and senior fellow in the Asia Pacific Leadership Network for Nuclear Nonproliferation, which I think is based in South Korea. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, and he's also been around the block at Washington think tanks too, from uh, CNAS to CFR to Wilson Center. Um, he's written two books. On North Korea, the first start out as his PhD thesis at CUA, Rival Reputations, Coercion and Credibility in the U.S.-North Korea Relations. And then uh, in 2018, he came out with On the Brink, Trump, Kim, and the Threat of Nuclear War in 2018. I was, I was floored when I actually saw uh, the book at the airport. So that's that's an achievement. So he wrote the second book as very quickly in six months, right? Um, 
very quickly wrote the book. It was very timely and did well. And the last thing I'm going to say about Van, because I can go on and on about uh, his just fascinating career trajectory, but but he's also um, you know big on punditry, but not in this sort of Washington stuffy way. But I I shared with you his podcast, the Undiplomatic Podcast. But if you really want a, a fresh kind of contrarian uh, take to foreign policy, actually not so much contrarian, but um, but he has a really interesting sometimes uh, yes uh, <laughs> uh, take. Um, he, he may have certain opinions about me sitting at Brookings right now, but um, <laughs> but uh, but it's a it's a fantastic podcast. I think you'll enjoy. It. I think you'll enjoy it because it's just uh, it's wonky but not wonky because he just speaks in a very uh, fresh, uh, plain language. But I think I've gone on enough about you, Van. So I'll just uh, bring you on board to the topic of of the day, and that's uh, that's really uh, North North Korea and. You know, before class, we were just talking about uh, we were just talking about what you know how how nothing has really changed a whole lot in the, in the last twenty years. And I showed a a clip from the Daily Show in two thousand nine with John Stewart, where he's poking fun of missiles and U, the UN Security Council resolutions with strongly worded statements that don't really do anything. And this is two thousand nine. It's twenty twenty two, but it's as if this clip could have been made you know, yesterday. Um, but I wanted you to just offer your assessments about what the U.S. has gotten right or wrong on North Korea uh, the last decade, uh, and also where things currently stand on North Korea de denuclearization and whether any alternative framework exists. Because the last point that we made before you jumped on was, you know, it seems like there's not a whole lot uh, the U.S. can do, certainly not a lot to change North Korea behavior. There are things that you can do to signal your displeasure. You can add more sanctions. You can you know, deploy strategic assets. But but I'm wondering if to actually change anything, we need to come up with a just an entirely different framework. So maybe if you could give uh, a few remarks on those uh, on those points and then uh, and then take some questions from students. Yeah, um, I mean, the I, I'd say the essence especially to answer your second question, we are trapped in a self-sabotaging dynamic that we have to escape. And we need to be able to recognize that in order to escape that dynamic, right? Um, in terms of the, the first question, though, just to work through, I guess, my perspective on the right and wrong. There's not a lot I can say about what we've gotten right on North Korea the last 10 years, you know? Um, if I'm really fishing for good news, it's that uh, with the exception of 2017, the past decade, and even beyond that, we've done a pretty good job of avoiding escalation and keeping a lid on the prospect of war. And some of that is because of general deterrence and keeping up alliance management. But a lot of it is just, you know, good old fashioned American risk aversion and North Korea not being enough of a priority to risk war for. Right. Um, and that's that may be like the upper bound of, of what I could say that's like good about North Korea policy the last decade. But on, on the sort of like where we've gone wrong, you know, how much time you got, uh, just to keep the list uh, short and sharp, you know, there's been a dramatic imbalance between the ends and means of, of North Korea policy. We've had an incorrect assumption about time being on our side as opposed to theirs, right? We've got this uh, 
unrealistic goal. We have an unrealistic reading of China's relationship to North Korea. We have a failure to understand North Korean strategic culture and a failure to understand the implications of the extreme power imbalance between us and, and them, right? So in the span of a few minutes, I'm not going to be able to do justice to all of this, but just like a couple detailed points to add, you know, um, we have defined our goal, as everyone knows, as denuclearization, which is the unilateral disarmament of a much smaller, weaker adversary. And that presents several problems at once, even though it's a well-intentioned goal, right? One is that it's unrealistic and everyone knows it, right? As, as Andrew suggested, nobody who knows anything about North Korea thinks it's going to give up nukes. And realistic goal setting is a criterion of good strategy. So by demanding the impossible as our starting point, we're making our own success impossible, man. Um, two, we have this dramatic imbalance between means and ends. Denuclearization is a huge ambitious goal because we are demanding that our enemy unilaterally disarm, right? And that's an existential risk for them. So we have that big goal. Okay, what have we been willing to do to achieve it? Nothing much, man. Sanctions, military exercises, uh, you know, signaling our displeasure, strongly worded letters. I mean, what basically low grade pressure, right? Um, what we want to happen is disproportionate to what we're willing to do to achieve it, right? So uh, if that's the case, whatever we do is never going to work, right? As long as there's this ends means mismatch in place. Three, you know, the, the demand for North Korea to disarm completely ignores the reality of the power imbalance between us. It got nukes in the first place to correct this power imbalance because it's so egregious, right? And there's this concept in rational bargaining literature uh, called Goliath's Curse. Todd Sashi wrote about it while I was studying at uh, CUA, actually. And I'm going to bastardize what the concept is, but the the takeaway was basically that American dominance actually makes it harder to influence adversaries. And that's obviously the case with North Korea, right? And then just very quickly, there are, are two other issues separate from the problem of our, of our goal or our end state, right? Um, one, the misread on Sino-North Korean relations. Policymakers tend to take a great power view of Northeast Asia. They tend to treat North Korea like it's a, a, a Chinese client state. And that's very ahistorical. Um, North Korean foreign policy has always been independent. It's, it's part of how North Koreans see themselves in the world, this notion of independence, right? And North Korea and China generally hate each other, right? They're in a state of like mutual strategic dependence, but they, there's no love lost between them, right? Um, and so you cannot expect that you can shape North Korea or whatever by going through Beijing. That's always been a, a, a farce or a myth, right? And then the other issue finally is just uh, a misreading of North Korean strategic culture. And I have a chapter about this in my last book. 
and the the short version is just that strategic culture in North Korea is basically you could sum it up as pressure for pressure. And what that means is that uh, all else equal, generally speaking, the North Koreans will defy uh, and retaliate against any pressure we impose on them. Therefore, any theory of influence that we have for dealing with North Korea is going to be prone to failure if it's based on coercive pressure, right? You have to anticipate how the target of your pressure will react when you do that, right? If it's going to react unfavorably, then it's obviously not a workable strategy, right? So this doesn't mean you can never coerce North Korea, but that cannot be the entirety of the strategy given their propensity, their empirical track record of responding defiantly, right? The, the 2017 nuclear crisis itself was pressure for pressure. It was brinkmanship responding to brinkmanship. And that was how we were off to the races, right? So that in a nutshell is why uh, the North Korea situation is such a failure. It's a it's a matter of bad goals, but also bad assumptions, right? Um, and yeah, we've gotten a lot wrong there. What was the other question? <laughs> you you've answered both actually, and, and that's uh, it. It's there's a lot in there. It's very rich. Can I just ask a a, a quick follow up? So it seems like one of the big problems is that. The mean, there's a mismatch between means and ends, and the end that we want is very, it's actually a very big ask for North Korea. It's, it's denuclearization, and it, yeah. and we don't quite understand the power imbalance. Or we, we see the power imbalance, but we don't recognize it. Um, and so if, if we have to move away from that end, that end of denuclearization, you know, it's you could say okay well you know we've talked about this as well too using uh, or, or getting at arm using arms control as perhaps an end or at least a temporary ends before you can reassess the situation but but that opens the danger or that creates this danger to the broader non-proliferation picture so i was wondering how mm -hmm. how that could be addressed so there's the problem of, of North Korea and North Korea denuclearization within Northeast Asia on the Korean Peninsula, but then there's this larger picture of, of, of just non-proliferation. Non and I fear, I feel that that's also where we have this disconnect because the US, uh, US has been so fixated on uh, non-proliferation as broader goal that um, the North Korea problem gets latched onto this, this bigger a bigger global problem. So what uh, if, if we have to move away from or if we need to readjust what our ends are, what would that end? What would that end be? Yeah, I mean, the nonproliferation regime is it's not a trivial uh, problem in the North Korea context, but it's also become this excuse to do nothing, nothing much. Right. Uh, to not not adapt to reality, which is kind of silly. Um, so, like, there is a valid logical argument to to make about like, well, if you don't, I don't know, if you ease up on punishing North Korea for violating the nuclear nonproliferation norm, then all hell will break loose and everyone will go nuclear. But the status quo is that North Korea has violated that norm egregiously. But not only has North Korea violated it, so has Pakistan, so has Israel, right? All hell did not break loose. 
right? It does create incentives for others to go to nuclear, right? But it's not our punishment of North Korea that prevents the others from going nuclear. There's a myriad of other factors involved in that, like geopolitics is complicated. So the I and like under the uh, South Korean the President Moon Jae-in administration, the last five years, you know, they ritualistically reaffirmed that denuclearization is a goal for South Korea, but only in like a very sort of loosey-goosey visionary way, not in a concrete way, not not as like a, a measurable object goal of policy planning. Like they weren't doing that. They wanted us to ease up on all that, right? So there was zero risk, zero of South Korea going nuclear the last five years had we come off of denuclearization as a goal. Zero risk. Now with the new administration coming in in South Korea, it's a little, the domestic politics of this question are a little different. But we had a window that we blew because we don't want to change to come off of this goal, ad adapt to reality with a more modest objective that might be more swallowable for North Korea. Um, but we just big fat didn't, you know. Um, and so, like, it's quite possible that we can't, that North Korea doesn't bite on the apple if we try to, like, establish arms control. But we can't know if we don't try. And so the question is, what's the cost of trying? What's that downside? What makes us so risk averse in the realm of diplomacy when in 2017, there was no such thing as risk aversion on the military side? We were willing to undertake a nuclear war if necessary. So like, what? why can we tolerate that kind of risk in 2017? But since then, we can't tolerate egg on our face. We can't tolerate diplomatic risk. Like, this is the kind of nonsense that like, you don't get, it's a blind spot in Washington. Like, it's a blind spot in the Washington Post and in the think tanks, except for Brookings, which is excellent. Um, <laughs> like, there, there's, this is non-transparent. Thinking. This is not honest intellectual. Like, if you just read the situation honestly, being pragmatic, you know North Korea is not going to denuclearize. You know past policies haven't worked. You know pressure has only caused crises. So what are we doing here? Why can't we do something we haven't tried, which is like what I would call dipping into like the peace intellectual tradition, right, of like, forms of restraint, concession making, in recognition of power imbalances. I'm the most pragmatic guy alive, I think, on this issue, but ain't nobody in DC saying what I'm saying, you know? So now I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. <laughs> we, there was a big uh, gathering at USIP of all these uh, Korea experts when Sung Kim was uh, in DC, I wish you would have been there, but you probably would have uh, killed yourself <laughs> hearing uh, hearing the different uh, ideas that were coming out, which were no different from what they've been the last uh, twenty years. But let me open the floor up to students because I'm sure they have some questions to ask for you about about North Korea. So, if, uh, does anyone have any uh, questions that they want to ask Dr. Jackson? Any thoughts or comments? Okay, Travis, and then Ethan. Uh, you may not see everyone on, on camera, so you may only hear their voice. If you don't hear them well, because uh, the microphone's kind of far, just uh, tell them to speak up. So uh, I, okay. can I give you two questions uh, at a time? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so uh, Travis and then Ethan. 
Um, thank you for coming to speak with us. I had a question on an article we read for class. Um, in the article, you said, faced with hard choices, the United States must soon take a gamble or else allow North Korea to gradually chip away at the nuclear non-proliferation. Um, I was just kind of curious, what do you mean by taking a gamble and what could those consequences look like? Okay, and um, again, yeah, thank you for coming to speak to us tonight. And uh, mine was a bit more personal and I noticed that you served in the United States Air Force. Um, and I wondered if you learned any skills or how that experience shaped your thinking in terms of what you deal with now surrounding uh, geopolitics? Good questions. Um, on the first one, so that, I think you're talking about the trilemma piece in Asia yeah, policy possibly? Yeah, I signed yeah. that. Yeah, nice. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> at, at the time when I wrote that, there was, I, I, th I feel like it still basically holds up, but the thing that I was, I was trying to, uh, what's the metaphor, split the baby or, I can't, I, and I'm not sure what, the, I'm bad with metaphors, but the, what I was, you have to understand the historical moment of 2016, 2017, um, when that piece came out, we were locked into strategic patience, only more so, right? We were not in the nuclear crisis quite yet, but the consensus in Washington had hardened um, and uh, soured on North Korea completely and hardened in such a way that it was clear we were going to have to escalate from our strategic patience posture. And so what I wanted to point out was that I, what we were doing wasn't working. So doing more of it also wasn't going to work, right? We needed to bring ends and means back into alignment. And one of the ironic you know, rub the genie lamp, get, you get what you wish for, but do you want what you're going to get? Like one of the ironic things about 2017 was that threatening nuclear war in the name of convincing an adversary to disarm actually does bring ends and means back into alignment because <laughs> it's big goal, big means, big risk, you know? Uh, but you have to ask if, if what you're chasing is actually worth it. And it's obviously not. Right. It's obviously not worth hazarding nuclear war in order to convince one small state to not go nuclear. Like that's 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 like betraying our humanity, you know. Um, and so that one specific sliver of North Korea policy, the ends means mismatch. Temporarily got brought back into alignment, but none of the other problems that I listed were addressed, right? In fact, they were all only made worse. So what I was trying to do in that piece was gesture toward the fact that like, yes, we can bring ends and means into alignment by bombing North Korea, right? That, that would correct the ends means mismatch. But obviously that's nonsensical. So the more sensible way of bringing ends and means into alignment is to go big on diplomacy to match your audacious diplomacy to match the audacious goal of adversarial disarmament, right? And that means not treating diplomacy as like ritualism. It's not perfunctory. It's not dudes in a suits sitting down at a, at a table. Like you have to have a theory of diplomacy. How are you going to make this work, man? What are you going to put on the table? How are you going to transform the relationship that North Korea defines as adversarial? 
what is what does that statecraft look like? And in the environment that I was writing the trilemma piece, it was impossible to broach that conversation. Post 2018, it's much more the 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 conversation is more fluid now and there's room to talk about you know arms control and other things and various forms of like sanctions relief circa 2016 2017 it was too taboo so i had to find a way to to steer us that way but in a way that was like compatible with the the tone of the conversation in washington at that moment and so the trilemma piece is the result of that that attempt to navigate, right? Um, so that's the backstory there, which might ex which might help answer your question. Right, and then the the question about how your time in the Air Force and also in, in DoD, if I mentioned, because you were at the Pentagon, also how that may have shaped mm. your thinking about these uh, these issues. Yeah, that's. Um, I mean serving in the military in Korea for a time made me very aware that there's a human factor when we play these coercion games, like the manipulation of risk in a pure rational abstract sense is what's going on. And that's how you win the coercion games. But what right do you have, or does any person have to play games with the lives of other people. Like, no, you know? And it was my life that was on the line. If the Bush administration had wanted to do to North Korea what it did to Iraq, right? Unacceptable. On what grounds, right? No, we can't do that. And my experience in the military makes me price in humanity into strategic questions, I think, more than a lot of people in DC do. Um, I just know that there's like a face on these risks. Uh, and so I try to keep that in mind. But also like, you know, when when you study world politics and, and like military strategy stuff, it's so abstracted that if you haven't been in the military, you might not understand what this strategy stuff looks like on the ground. And so I was an enlisted Air Force guy. Like I was, I started as an E1, nothing like cleaning, cleaning people's shoes, basically, you know? And so I, I had a, I have a sense from the ground up about how tactics connect up to operations and operations connects up to military strategy and military strategy connects up to uh, grand strategy or like our national role conceptions, like our place in the world. Right. Um, and without the military experience, I don't know if I could have made those um, relationship linkages at different levels of strategy. Great. Those are really interesting insights. Um, let me just open it up again to questions. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So we have two. I don't know if you can see them. Uh, uh, Katrina, so why, why don't you go first? Yeah. Um, so do you, you, it sounds like from what you said and like what you've written, it sounds like you genuinely believe that there was a risk of nuclear war between the United States and North Korea in 2017. Um, could you just explain why you think that? Because that seems a little shocking to me. And then, and then if I can get Sarah to ask her question to, to say, yeah. Sarah, go. Um, 
I'm Sarah. Uh, I was. I have another kind of personal question, but I was wondering. Uh, you mentioned you have kind of a unconventional view on this. If there are any other, like writings or books on the topic, uh, or on this topic, holding similar views, and what is one book on this topic that you think everyone should read? Other than, uh, <laughs> other I was going to say, on the brink. Yeah. Oh, the threat of nuclear war. <laughs> yeah, so two questions. Uh, the first was about why you th actually thought that we were on the brink of nuclear war. Um, and that's that's a good segue to on the brink as well. <laughs> so I think you answer that. And then, um, and also other recommended readings, or if there's other people that share your uh, your views about North Korea that are out there. And if I can throw in what, and this will be our last round of questions, I don't want to hold you too long, but um, you know, I, On the Brink published before the Hanoi Summit. That's correct, because I think the book yeah. came out. Yeah, but um, if I wanted to ask if you were optimistic at that point about some kind of deal being struck that would actually resolve some of the tensions or what your thoughts were at that time. So this is post, you know, On, on the Brink and after, where we had many thought that there could be a, a, a breakthrough here. I know there's still skeptics, but even some of the skeptics in Washington were beginning to turn around after it at least the, the Singapore summit. So when we get to Hanoi, or at least in the run-up to Hanoi, if you had a more optimistic view that things were going to change at that time. So uh, so if, if you could just address those those three questions. Yeah, I, so On the Brink is like this the one book answer to all three of those questions in a way, or it answers all three of those questions. Um, on the risk of nuclear war, yeah, I mean, the book is a, is basically a manuscript length argument about why, right? Why, why the risks were what they were, like on what basis, what grounds could I argue that? Um, and I had, I, I can't go into it here, but I laid out three different pathways to nuclear war and what I signposted, what the indicators were. And we were lighting up those indicators all simultaneously. So it wasn't even that we were on one pathway, we were on three at the same time. And what was compounding risks was that we didn't seem to recognize or appreciate the fact that we were. And so the risk was actually not coming, the risk of nuclear war was not coming from North Korea per se. And I, this is one of the misconceptions that people have when they look back. It's like, well, North Korea's not stupid enough to attack us. They're not going to launch a nuclear war against us, right? And like, that's true, all things being equal, but the 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 margin of risk wasn't from North Korea's side. It was from North Korea's strategic culture of pressure for pressure and brinkmanship and us failing to heed that and us adopting a brinkmanship strategy against a smaller state with everything at risk who was already had an ingrained brinkmanship strategy. It was us. And the thing that really got me concerned was that in 2017, the early months, I had friends who were working in the Pentagon and out at PACOM, uh, Indo-Pacific Command now, and they were freaked the F out. Like they were, they were talking about how the conversation, and I, I have some like off uh, non-attribution interviews quoted in the book, but they were talking, they had been through the paces on what it was to be in a North Korean, you know, crisis situation from 2010. They've been around the block. They they know the routine. 
and they were freaked out about what we were deciding to do, what we were planning to do. And it started to percolate up that we were going to start amassing military pressure on them in order to cajole them or persuade them coercively to disarm. And that wasn't going to work. And so we were going to be forced into a situation of self-escalating. Um, and it got to the point right before the, the summit started happening, it got to the point that we were publicly leaking out of the White House this bloody nose strategy. So we were going to launch preventive attacks against North Korea as a way of compelling them to give up their nukes, which on the face of it is absolutely nonsensical. And that's why it leaked out from the White House in the first place, because it's like we have to stop this kind of thing, you know. Um, so that was the risk issue. The second question, I can't, what was, I can't. Books. Oh, about books, uh, recommended oh. books. I've already written down on the brink from okay. like the beginning. So others. Other than, other than on the brink, <laughs> other than your own stuff. Yeah. Uh, and is there anyone else that shares your views? Yes. Um, so Pocket Panda's book is, is, it's very wonky, like technical. There's a lot of like missile data and stuff in it, but it's very good. And it's in the same, um, I don't know what you would call it, ideological flow is what I'm saying. And there's, it, it's, it's all too recent. And even my perspective on all this has come together recently, like in the last few years only. So there's no other real books on the subject. Like Onkets is the last one to come out, I think. Um, but you see shorter pieces here and there. The people who are, I think, who are mucking around in this space that uh, share my broad sensibility is like Onkit, uh, Toby Dalton at the Carnegie Endowment, um, Frank Ahm at USIP, um, Joe Yoon, who is now not doing Korea stuff anymore. He just got appointed the like compact negotiations ambassador or something like that. Uh, and, uh, somewhat surprisingly, Vincent Brooks, who's, uh, the former, like four-star general in charge of U.S. forces, Korea. And then there's like a bunch of European scholars who, um, are just like peaceniks or whatever. So like they, they're starting they're they're they start with the conclusion of like peace on peace in our time. And then they like work backwards to like, what should our policy be? Um, which is not the way my mind works, but like we are end up in the same place, I guess. Um, yeah. So that's, that's like the broad landscape. And then there's lots of people whose opinions on this stuff is hard to nail down. Um, Professor Yo is actually one of those people. So that's kind of a good thing. Like it's good in my mind when you can't predict what people are going to say. All right. And and then lastly, on, <laughs> I won't answer that now. We can have another conversation. You know that my, my positions have also evolved uh, a bit too over time. I think that's, that's part of the reason mm. as well. Because I'm kind of I'm for me. That the pressure. I was much more of a hawk, I think, 10 years ago. But I can see that the pressure, the pressure strategy doesn't, uh, doesn't work. But when it comes to things like sanctions, I'm a, a little bit more reluctant to uh, give those things up at, at this point, but uh, this one. So that I know we're already over time, but uh, on 
on the Hanoi summit, though, were you, you know, what were your thoughts at that, at that time? And oh. were you, were you optimistic that this could actually be the moment where uh, we have a shift in, in policy where the, not, not just the narrative, but the actual policy begins to change and, and we can see uh, a light at the end of the tunnel on, on. Yeah. On the I, so this, this is proof of my intellectual honesty. I'd like to think, which is that like, and this is what, I, this is what I was hinting at when I was like, I'm not wired the way the European scholars are on this question. Right. I was extremely vocally pessimistic about the summits and it was based on my own analysis of the situation. So like I was, I was writing everywhere I could. I made a documentary about all this and I was making the documentary completely trashing the summit processes while they were ongoing. And the documentary got released by Politico magazine um, the day before the Hanoi summit. That's how it like, so the book ended well before the Hanoi summit, but um, that interim period between writing the book and um, the summit happening, I was working on the documentary, hitting a lot of these same points, but like just drilling at home. There was no reason to think that the summits were going to change anything if it was separate from changes in the structure of the situation. So the way I was reading the summits, I mean, I have a very grim view of Trump. So like that was part of it too. Like I, I saw it all as bad faith on his part, which turned out to be correct. But uh, I saw a lot of signaling and cheap talk. I saw rhetoric that talked about peace and I saw individual leaders working within extremely constrained structures structures where there was an irreducible conflict of interest structures where there was no foreseeable what we would call in game theory like a win set right what are the available outcomes where both sides can claim a win there were none as long as our goal was denuclearization and it remained denuclearization so there was no way that the promises that trump was making were going to pan out and the the thing to watch to, to know whether things could improve or not was what's North Korea doing with its nuclear arsenal? Is it continuing to build it out? Which it did, right? It was reproducing fizzle material even during the summits so that by the end of the summit period, from the start of the summit period, there was like a year plus. During that year plus, the Defense Intelligence Agency estimated that North Korea had produced enough fizzle material for 12 to 18 more nuclear warheads than it had in 2017 in the crisis. That told me everything I needed to know. And the fact that like North Korea was not making any concessions to the like number of warheads it had, it wasn't reducing its nuclear inventory as part of these negotiations. And so the material threat remained unchanged and in fact got worse, even as the the diplomacy was talking about peace in our time and no longer a nuclear threat. So like the signaling of peace is something I support, but it has to be at some point attached to a materialist foundation. And if you divorce it from that materialist foundation, it becomes cheap talk. 
It's BS. It's, there's no reason to believe it, right? And so the upshot of talking about so much peace and building up optimism is that it creates buffer space against war. It's harder to fall into a crisis when everyone's talking about lovey-dovey peace. And so I liked that part of it, but it was being done in a uniquely stupid way because it was creating false expectations about what North Korea was going to do. And it was not addressing the root of the problem. And it, even this, even to the extent that it was like trying to improve relations with the U.S. and North Korea, it which is arguably not what it was trying to do, it was being personalized in Trump per se, rather than in the national security state, which views North Korea as like this unbelievable enemy still, right? So like attenuating enemy images uh, between us, you have to go to work on that at levels other than just two personal leaders. That can be a starting point, but if that's as far as it ever goes, then this is a broken situation. And that, so that was my read. So it seemed like from your vantage point that it was just too superficial and it was bound to fail because none of the structural foundations that could actually lead to uh, a more, I guess, permanent basis for a new new relationship and even for, for denuclearization just wasn't there. So it was that gap between what was happening at the summit superficial level and then the actual conditions on the ground that there was this there's this mismatch. So um, yeah, on both sides too, not just North yeah. Korea. Like we also weren't willing to create material conditions like to, that matched the rhetoric. We also like we weren't doing dramatic sanctions relief or big aid packages like that was never really on the table. And in fact, was one of the sticking points at the summit. Yeah, that's just, OK. Well, this is a very depressing, <laughs> depressing way to end our in our session, but I felt like, you know, I, I, you packed in so much and in the 30, you actually gave us extra 10 minutes, 40 minutes here. I feel like one of these days you should do a undiplomatic podcast session with just a class um, and just open up the questions. I felt like we were actually on the podcast at this, uh, at this point. Yeah. But, um, I mean, if you guys aren't actually, if you're not opposed to it, I can use this audio. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Do we have to fill out like disclaimers or do I have to get to I'm, I'm fine no. with it. Yeah, no, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, I can ask I can ask the students. Um, I'll follow if you want to use it. I mean, Just let me know. Yeah. Okay, sure. But thank you again for uh, taking time. Uh, I was gonna say your evening, but your your lunch time out to chat with us. Uh, and I'll be in touch with you again over here now. Great. Thanks guys. Okay, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.